And the, the final scripture reading for this morning is from Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. It says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Most great and holy God, help us to glorify and adore you this morning. You alone are the most pure, the holy light, and the source of all righteousness. Feed us by your word and grant us wisdom. Guard us by your word and make us new by your rule. Through our mighty Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And so I want to I tell you guys about an experience my wife and I, well, and Benaiah, uh, our son, had about a month ago. Uh, we were traveling from the south, visiting Lawrence family, back here. And we were already exhausted uh, for, by spending a, a whole week with Lawrence family. You know, it was a great time, but it's exhausting. It's just what it is. And they're watching this morning. I love you guys, but family's exhausting. I really love you. Uh, and, and we get to our hotel at about 1130 uh, that evening. And, uh, and we have to catch our plane at 3 that next morning, right? So 1130 and then 3 a.m. And then Lauren is trying to get Benaya to sleep uh, in, in her bed. There's no pack and play, but the light has to be on because I'm repacking our bags because we have more stuff than what we came with. So I've got to figure all this out. Um, and, and if that wasn't bad enough, the, the hotel was um, uh, disagreeable. It was... Uh, it was kind of gross, if, to say the least. Uh, I 100% expected to come home with bed bugs. Uh, I didn't, praise the Lord. But, uh, and so we finally get to sleep. We wake up and go to the airport. And keep in mind, this is like 3 a.m. Uh, and, uh, and we missed our flight. So <laughs> after about an hour, Lauren figures out a new flight for us with the, with the desk attendant. And, and after that, everything goes swimmingly. We make our flights. We get back to Seattle. It's a little, few hours later than ex- expected. No problem. Um, we, we start packing everything in my car at the hotel where we paid to keep my car. And I go to turn it on. I go, uh, someone had stolen my catalytic converter. So that was super fun as well. So just a super fun day that was. And, and as annoying as some of these things were for me, I know that there's people in the world that experience that experience things far worse than just even those slight inconveniences, right? Um, and, and I know even people in this church, we all experience crummy days. And I think we innately and rightly understand that these things are not the way it's supposed to be. Right, the Advent season looks back to Jesus' first coming and forward to his second coming to show how things ought to be. And that's what this passage in Revelation is about. It shows us every, how everything is supposed to be and how it will be forever. It shows us our future paradise, but also gives us a vision for how things should be and could be now, focusing on the theme of, of, of life in the new and better Eden. You know, specifically, we, can, we, we see in this passage that God is the source of new creation life. God is the source of new creation life. And we can think about this new creation life in two experiences of God's people, 
The first is that God is the source of consummated new creation life. And second, God is the source of inaugurated new creation life. All right, to explore these two ideas, I'm actually going to go through the passage two times completely, each time exploring one of those particular experiences. All right, first we start uh, with, with the fact that God is the source of consummated new creation life. Right, and it's important to, to define what I mean by consummated. I'm using the term to express several ideas in one. It's, it's, it's both temporal, uh, pointing forward to our future. It's, it's coming. It's not yet. It's also qualitative, meaning perfect, uh, complete, whole, and full. Right? So future and perfect, consummated. And, and the first way we experience this consummated new creation life is by being a purified people. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. So we see the river of the water of life. And, and of course, we can't miss the connection to, to Genesis, right? We can't miss the connection to the Garden of Eden. You know, in Genesis 2, it says that the river flowed out of Eden, watering the garden and giving it life. We're talking about new creation life in this Revelation passage because it's impossible to miss the imagery given to us that shows how the Bible ends where it begins in the garden. And this river uh, shows that, that new creation life is found in God by symbolically representing the Holy Spirit. The clearest reference to show this is John 7 where it's clarified that as Jesus is talking about uh, rivers of living water, it says immediately after, and he was talking about the Holy Spirit, right? And so the first thing we see in this passage is that the Holy Spirit is there in new creation giving life but what will this mean for us when we're there? You know, we see that, that the water is, is bright as crystal. It, it's, it's, the Holy Spirit is shown as, as perfectly pure, holy, and a clean river. That's, and that's the, that's the effect that it has on God's people. Right? The Holy Spirit is seen purifying and bringing new life and forever sustaining new life in us. In the fall of Genesis 3, death was brought into the world. And the purifying work of the Spirit here shows how he will address certain aspects of our experience of death. Someday all that is defiled, all that is unclean and unrighteous and impure will be perfected and restored in holiness, righteousness, and purity of divine life and the consummation of all things. You know, this means that we will be so perfectly pure and cleansed, we won't desire what is ungodly. We won't get unrighteously angry. We won't uh, lust after the promises of false gods Right? We won't chase the false glories of the world. It's, it's not even possible. It's not there. You know, beyond that, we won't even be affected by other people's sins. Think of all that is tainted by impurity and defilement in this world and know that those things will be perfectly purified. You know, ultimately, those points toward our relationship with God, so, which, which we all know now we experience impurity in our, in our relation with God. We fail. Although he doesn't, we do. And here in the consummation, we have fullness of life because we are so cleansed by the Spirit of God himself that we are restored to him. You know, and Craig started this Advent series talking about all the things that were broken in the fall. And here the first thing we see is that the life of God and the Holy Spirit has fully overcome the impurity and defilement that came with the curse of death. And next we look in the passage to our next aspect of our experience of the consummated new creation life. Look with me at, at verse 2. It says, Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing 
of the nations. So we are a fed and healed people, right? This, the tree of life uh, it, it gives life by its fruitfulness, which will feed, and its leaves which heal. And, and the tree symbolizes Jesus Christ in this passage. You know, one commentator says, this tree of life is Christ. Christ is food, offering the fruit of his cross for the life of his people. Jesus, when he walked on this earth, invited people to eat from him and promised that that eating of him would give them eternal life. And that's the fruition that we see in this passage. And secondly, we see that Christ, the tree, will not only feed but heal nations. This shows us that the relational strife that began in the fall between the man and the woman, which spread to all human relationships and ultimately full nations, that will be healed. And, and this picture of our consummated new creation life, all the nations will be restored as one people, worshiping God rightly, collectively eating from the fruit of Christ. Christ himself is the new and forever tree of life. Where in the fall, death of harmonious relationships began, here in the consummation, God himself will bring life to all people through Christ, the Savior of the world. And it's no small thing to notice what's absent in this picture. There is no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is no tree of death, what I've call, chosen to call it. Right? This, this detail clues us in to the fact that we cannot fail here in the new consummated new creation life. Right? This shows that Eden is not just a new Eden, but, but a better Eden. Right? We, we don't have the possibility of disobedience. And, and lastly, we see that our experience in the consummated new creation life will be, we are a ruled people. We will be a ruled people. You know, God the Father is shown on his throne, ruling the world. He will rule from the throne of life. You know, this is the river of life flows from the throne, watering the tree of life, giving, giving food and nourishment and healing to the world. You know, the throne is the source of all life. His rule is life-giving. And we see further that God on his throne will be so glorious that he outshines the sun and makes it obsolete. Right? Two benefits of God's glorious ruling are stated explicitly in these verses. Right? And let's, let's go ahead and read those verses, verses 3 through 5. It says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the, the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And so the two benefits that we see for God's people are this, his servants, that it says in there. First, there is no curse. You know, several benefits of this are seen just in examining the benefits of the river and the tree. Of the Holy Spirit and Christ, there is purity and righteousness. No longer does the ground fight against the people for nourishment, but Christ nourishes his people faithfully for free forever. No longer is there any relational strife, but all people, even complete nations, are relationally healed and mended. And the chasm between holy God and sinful man is bridged by the triune God. You know, ultimately, we see that life has conquered death. In fact, God has spread the power of his divine life so far and wide, death and all of its effects are, are not to be found. God promised Adam and Eve that they would surely die, and so it was. And so it is for us now. But in this text, in the consummated new creation life, we see only life. This passage also specifically mentions that there will be no more night because God's glory from his throne shines so brightly it overcomes all darkness. Again, this connects to Genesis. 
We can't miss these connections. And in the second verse of the entire Bible, it says that darkness covered everything. And into that darkness, God spoke light. The, the Apostle John, the, the author of Revelation, often uses the symbolism of darkness in his other writings to refer to spiritual blindness and sin. And in his gospel, he says, Christ came into the world of darkness as the light, and the darkness has not overcome him. And this light of Christ grows to finally overcome all the darkness, all the unrighteousness because of spiritual blindness and rebellion. So where Genesis 1 started in utter darkness... Revelation ends with eternal, unending light of God's righteousness and holiness outshining the sun, moon, and stars. And what we've seen so far is a future paradise where a Trinitarian God gives everlasting, imperishable life to his people. The Holy Spirit eternally cleanses and purifies. The Son eternally feeds and heals, and the Father eternally rules with righteousness. And we see, again, one last connection to the beginning of Genesis here. Adam and Eve were given a mandate to work the garden and to keep it, to guard it, and to rule it. They were to guard the garden from defilement, rule over it by creating order and keeping order, and cultivate it by spreading it across the globe. Right? We know that Adam and Eve failed desperately in all of these areas when they bent the knee to the temptation of Satan. Yet, what we see in this Revelation passage is God restoring his people to reign over the garden that he himself now rules, guards, and cultivates. It says that, that God's servants will reign forever and ever. What this means is that God installs his people as vice regents or little kings, right, under rulers, taking dominion of the better Eden, yet for un, forever unable to fail as Adam and Eve did. And this is how it's supposed to be, full of life completely without the effects of death, perfectly purified, holy, righteous, and good. But what does this future consummated hope actually mean for us? Why does this matter? You know, what, what good is it when I come home from vacation and my catalytic converter is stolen? Uh, or, or when you get in a fight with your spouse again this week or fall into sin for the hundredth time? Right? Or just feel the pressures of living in a broken world? In this Advent season, we focus on our longing for Christ's second coming. And that's exactly the context that these people were in who received the letter of Revelation. The letter was calling them to endurance, not just because of things to come, but because of realities that were present for them. You know, and if present for them, present for the church now. Let's look at how this passage talks about our, our present experience in the new Eden, in new creation life. And to, go, to do this, we're going to go through the passage again, seeing how the river, tree, and throne apply to us now, leading us to our second point which is that God is the source of our inaugurated new creation life. God is the source of our inaugurated new creation life. And to explain, like I did for consummate, I need to explain how I'm using inaugurated. Right? I'm using this to explain our present experience of an imperfect and incomplete new creation. The point is that new creation has begun. You know, the reality is listed in these five verses are, are to be experienced by us Christians now, but not perfectly and not completely, but presently. You know, let's look at the first aspect again, which is, which is uh, um, the, tr uh, the river, right? It, and that means that we are a purifying people, right? We've recognized that the, the symbolism of the river is pointing to the Holy Spirit. And the New Testament is unwaveringly clear that the Holy Spirit has begun his work as he dwells in believers of Christ. Yet if the Spirit is a purifying agent, why do we still experience so much impurity now? Why do we sin? Why are we sinned against? How, how can I actually say we're experiencing what's shown in this passage? Uh, one, I say it because I think the Bible says it. Uh, we are called new creations. 
right? The Holy Spirit's presence in us is proof that God is making us new. Presently, we are not perfectly pure, clean, and righteous, but we are being purified and cleansed. God began his purifying new creation work in us, his church, and will stay true to his promise to complete what he has begun. And we get to participate you know, let me present you the picture again from Ezekiel 47, which the Kimples read for us this morning. It shows a river flowing from the temple that starts shallow, and as it flows, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper until it's deep enough to swim in, and it flows out into the world. And one crucial detail, it says that it flows into the sea. That's talking about the Dead Sea. It flows into the Dead Sea, giving life. And it says that everything will live where the river goes. Right? And I believe this is actually a picture of the church now. Or at least a picture of what the church can be. If this is true, then the church actually has real work to do on the earth. If the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we are actually the riverbed through which the river flows. We are the agents by which the river of the Spirit deepens in the world. Right? Think about it. So when we send missionaries into the world to share the gospel with unreached people groups and they profess faith in Christ, what has happened? The river has gotten deeper the Holy Spirit has spread to a new people, purifying what once was unclean, bringing life to what once was dead. Right? That, what happens when you share the gospel with, with your neighbor and they believe? You have deepened the river as, as the church does what she ought to do. She makes the image of, tw- uh, of Revelation 22 a reality. And gospel work isn't just specifically the super narrow idea of what we think of, of, of as evangelism. Where society is filthy, it's our job to enter and cleanse. Where communities are thirsty, we alone are able to enter and give them a drink from this river. When you work your job in a pure way and have pure relations with coworkers, you are a purifying agent in those spaces. You know, when we live and work and relate and behave in godly ways, when we do Christianly things in a Christianly way in the world, we are mysteriously being purifying agents in those places. Gospel work is life-giving work. We are invited to participate as we have become the living house of the river of the water of life. And then we look at the next aspect of our inaugurated new creation life. Is that we are a feeding and a healing people. Right? As we look at the tree. And again, the the picture of Ezekiel 47 is, is extremely helpful for us. Let me read it for you. It says, and on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. You know, the one major difference that we see in the the Ezekiel passage and the Revelation passage is that in, in Ezekiel, there's many trees. There's a lot of them. And in the Revelation passage, there's one. And, and I think... Revelation is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Ezekiel. And so what John does when he writes this passage, I think he words it so artfully that we're actually supposed to see both one tree, who is Christ, and many, many trees who are the people of God. Right? Who are little trees being formed in the image of Christ. As per, as per the, the prophecy of Ezekiel. And of course we must first see how Christ feeds us now. And heals us now. He nourishes us in several ways, right? We feed on his word and we feed on his body in the, in the communion, at the communion table that we, we participate in every week. We, we're fed by obeying him even. And these similarly bring healing. 
And this is how we are transformed from people who used to eat the fruits of death into people who eat the fruits of Christ. And, and of course, this seems incomplete now in our experience because we often still look to other false trees for life. Right? We look to other false worldly vines for healing. But Christ's food and healing ensure that we remain in him and grow in, in, in faithful dieting, learning to eat from him more than from the world. And as Christ presently feeds and heals us now, we as his image bearers are to do the same in the world, bringing nourishment and healing, bringing Christ's life into the world. It means we are to take the fruit of Christ in the world for, for people to feast on. Right? We get the pleasure of taking the word and good news of Christ into starving and dead places. Where are the places in your life that you know are lifeless and without Christ? You can be a little tree by intentionally taking the word of Christ into that space. You know, where are the countries, nations, villages, communities, and peoples that are dying without the fruit of Christ's gospel? We get to go plant churches there, right? Growing more little trees, spreading Christ's fruit even more effectively. And, and furthermore, we offer Christ's fruit in, a, in, a, in a, a slightly different way by being fruitful ourselves. The New Testament is not unclear about this. Learning to live in ways that are marked by love, joy, peace, patience, etc., are ways we offer Christ's fruit to the world, even just to whet their appetite for the full saving work of Christ's gospel. So both the gospel of Christ and the fruits of his people are meant to work in tandem to heal the world. We are invited to be fruitful trees, imitating Christ and giving of himself for the life of the world. And finally, in our inaugurated new creation life, now, we see that we are a ruling people, a ruling people. You know, as we, as we look again to verses 3 through 5, the throne of God. And, and one of the most important themes, I think, that runs through Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is, is the clashing of two major kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, the, the kingdom of the enemy. And when we come to this Revelation passage, only one of those kingdoms remains. God's kingdom. He alone rules over everything. This points to one major detail I haven't talked about yet in this passage, and I'm sure some of you are thinking, why haven't you talked about this? That seems a little um, unprepared, maybe. Uh, and uh, on the throne is not just God the Father, but also the Lamb. And I'm going to say that this Lamb also represents Jesus Christ, the Son. And you're saying, but doesn't the tree represent Christ, David? You're a really bad uh, preacher. Um, and I'm going to say yes. Uh, I think... Uh, I think this passage shows two important contours of Christ's work by using two symbols to represent him. Right? The tree shows the fruit of his work. It shows how, how the fruit feeds and heals his people forever. But the image of the lamb shows how that fruit was cultivated. All right, it seems that this passage is showing that in eternity, in our consummated new creation, we will always remember not just the blessing of the fruit of Christ, but also his utterly self-giving sacrifice of becoming the lamb to provide that fruit for us. Right? In this sacrificial act where Christ became our atoning lamb, the enemy's kingdom toppled. Christ's crushing blow to the church's greatest enemy was the blow that put Christ into the grave. Right? This upturns everything we expect from a ruler. Yet it's the crucifixion of Christ which both saves his people from their sin and inaugurates his victorious kingdom. This kingdom of life is only inaugurated and consummated through the lamb's death. This is how the kingdom of death is conquered. When Christ went to the Father's right hand to reign. You know, when we see Christ the Lamb alongside the Father on the throne, we are forced to remember the nature of Christ's inaugurated rule. He rules 
from a state of gentleness and lowliness. Under his rule, the yoke is easy and the burden is light. You know, and and in in verse 5, thankfully, we get to partake in that that, that rule, his servants. That's who we are. So we must ask what it means. You know, Adam and Eve's roles as vice regents in the garden, I, I believe, has been passed to us today. This means that they were tasked with, with, as they were tasked with guarding, keeping, working, and ruling the garden, we are tasked with guarding, keeping, working, and ruling all the places where the church finds herself to be. You know, I believe that the church is meant to rule the world through the transformative power of the gospel. You know, Christ is king of the world through his vice regents of the church. But what this means is that as Christ extends his rule on the earth through us, is we pour ourselves out unto death for the life of the world, like Christ did. We take the gospel where it will cost our life, or, or maybe, more specifically for us in our context, we take the gospel where it will cost us our job, or we take the gospel where it will cost us our freedom, or our comfort, even. Christ will not rule the world through the church by might, but by martyrdom and sacrifice. Or like God the Father making an orderly world, he's, he's on the throne ordering everything. In Genesis 1, we see he speaks and creates order, right? Like God, we do the same in whatever little domains God has given us. This gives us actual real meaning to pulling weeds in our yard, mowing the lawn, creating a family budget, or creating healthy rhythms of work and rest. This is creating order out of chaos in our lives, and this is important for us to rule, right? This, the little kingdoms God has given us, we are to, to order properly, and Ultimately, though, the rule of God and Christ in the world only happens through us, our, his people, in one way, which is worship. And worship properly orders all things. As the church preaches the word, observes the sacraments, and practices prayer, the world has changed. How does Christ rule his people? By changing their hearts and renewing their affections for him. You know, Christ will rule the nations by shaping the affections of the world through the church's mission of worship. When we worship, we, we wage war against the false promises of the enemy and the seductive temptations of the world. Right? We become little serpent crushers by worshiping rightly and regularly. Right? Worship propers, properly orders all things and defeats our enemy. You know, ordinary church is where God works extraordinary miracles. And, and again, we have seen that the Trinitarian nature of our inaugurated new creation life is, is, is all found in God, right? It's, it's Trinitarian. The Holy Spirit purifies us and purifies the world through us. Christ feeds us and heals us by, uh, by his atoning work on the cross and calls us to be self-sacrificial in our imitation of him, feeding his fruit to the world. Our gracious and glorious Heavenly Father rules us from the throne, inviting us to spread his rule across the globe through ordinary means of worship. Does the world still experience death presently? Yes. The world is still impure and broken and malnourished and unruly. But we know it is being made new. When Christ came as the light into the darkness, he began the renewing of all things. Christ will conquer the world through his kingdom. Yet it's, it's the darkness in the world which makes that conquering painful for us. And we can't understate that. We can't imagine that it's going to be easy. Right? The darkness in the world cost Christ his life, and it will cost us ours. But it, it means we have present hope now, because 
we know we function properly as, as a church. When we function that way, we are participating in the cosmic redemption that Christ has already inaugurated. He has already begun this amazing work. And this picture of the inaugurated new creation, life functions to indict us when we fail. This image of revelation will indict us when we fail and spur us to repentance. Reminding us of our dependence on the purification of the Spirit, the feeding and healing of uh, of fruits of Christ's sacrificial work, and the righteous ruling of God the Father. Yet it also encourages us and reminds us what we ought to be and are capable of being by the grace of God. We we, We get to be little rivers, little trees, and little rulers bringing God's life into the world around us. And as it will be perfectly, so we experience now imperfectly. The vision of the consummated new creation life spurs us on to live in and experience the inaugurated new creation life by the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so by, by his triune grace, by, by the grace of our triune God, may we look forward to Christ's second advent with real hope for today, imitating the Trinity as, as life givers who purify, feed, heal, and rule the world by the power of God. Pray with me. God of life, help us to have real, enduring hope and see you as the wellspring of all life as we grow in your likeness. Give us confidence that, that you will bring about what you have promised and transform us so we may transform your world. We have, you have made us to be new creations, to be ministers of reconciliation. Teach us to cling to the gospel and teach the nations to do the same. May you be king of every heart and adorned by all peoples. In Jesus' name, amen.